Good. You know, as we were singing those songs, I um, was freshly reminded of how fragile my life is and how desperately I need God to touch me deep in my soul. I was wondering how you feel about your lives. You feel strong apart from God? Feel like you don't need Him? Is He an afterthought to you? I want to ask a question this morning. What kind of a person are you? What kind of a person am I? I think it's time for some self-reflection, some healthy self-reflection. Are you the kind of person that likes to plan what you're going to do with your life? Or do you like experiencing life moment by moment without any direction whatsoever? And uh, let's see what happens. Are you a goal setter? Such that reaching your milestones gives you a, an amazing rush and propels you to the next goal to conquer? Or are you the kind of person that goals add more pressure to a life that's already filled with burden and gloom? And the reason I'm asking this question is because whether or not you and I are one extreme or the other, or a, you know, a blend of the two, um, and I'm specifically talking to Christians now. We're called to have at least one clear goal in our lives. Those of us that belong to Christ, we are called to this one thing. We are to love God and we are to love our neighbor. There's the message. We can go home now. The thought of loving God and loving your neighbor might conjure up kind of twisted thoughts in you if you've been a churchgoer for a long time. They may conjure up thoughts of mere performance so that if I don't perform these things, then I'm not acceptable before God. That's a twisted version of what the Gospel teaches. But... Is part of loving God, let's say, reading my Bible, or praying, or sharing my faith, or serving, or cleaning my room, or calling my parents? Is that what loving God's about? We have a tendency of performing tasks that we deem most important. And it's those tasks and it's those things that we focus on in our life. And everything else, we just let go. I mean, there's only 24 hours in a day. Give me a break. Can't do everything. My concern, though, is that by us performing those tasks, whatever they are, could it be that we are not focusing on that which is most important, on that which God deems most worthy of praise. My old theology professor, Kevin Lewis, exhorted our class 
with a bit of wisdom, and I want to give this to you. And here's what he said. He said, if you want to know a core teaching of Scripture, because of time restraints, go to the texts that are most packed with that teaching. Go to texts that are clearest in the Scriptures. And I have found that to be a bit of advice that I try to live by because of time restraints. Today, I hope to help you who have goals make sure that what is taught today is at the top of your list. And likewise, for those of you who have no goals, that you at least make this, what is taught today, priority in your life. I say this not on my own authority. I say this on the authority of Christ, on the authority of the Word of God. What I'm saying and hope to persuade you to buy into today is that at the end of the day and at the end of your life and my life, when it's all been said and done, loving God and my neighbor is all that ultimately matters. I'm going to say it again. Loving God and my neighbor at the end of the day is all that ultimately matters. That's what I want to teach on this morning. Go to Matthew 22, 34-40. Now I've titled this message, Loving God and My Neighbor is All That Ultimately Matters. The text reads, But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together, one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now in the context, Jesus is obliging the Jewish rulers the conservatives of that day, if you will, who want to get into a theological debate with him. And let's just say that he passes with flying colors. But first, he answers the Pharisees regarding paying taxes to Caesar. And I want to read these texts. I want us to get a sense of what's going on, the heat, the, the theological heat, and the personal attack that Jesus is experiencing and how he is responding. In Matthew 22, 15 through 22, the text reads, Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? 
Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed, and leaving him, they went away. Now, secondly, in Matthew 22, 23-33, we see Jesus correcting the Sadducees, who were the liberals of the day. Regarding their misunderstanding of the resurrection and the scriptures, Jesus also silenced them. Listen to what the text reads. On that day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and questioned him, asking, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, and having no children left his wife to his brother. So also the second, and the third, down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. We've got to understand something. These were texts that the Jews already knew by memory. This was nothing new. And what was plainly on the text, they could not see. So the master teacher points it out to them. Now finally, Jesus is going to deliver the death blow to all interrogation. And this is where I want to camp out this morning. And essentially there's two things going on. We have a lawyer interrogating Jesus and Jesus responding to the lawyer. So first of all, the lawyer's interrogation. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. So a lawyer asks him a question, and his purpose is to test Jesus. Now a lawyer was a well-versed man in the law of Moses, and lawyers were part of the Pharisaic uh, uh, party. These were the conservatives of the day. These were uh, those who both knew the scriptures well and applied the law of Moses to civic law as well. They were schooled theologians and they were legal experts by today's standards. Now check out the motive for questioning Jesus. He wanted to put Jesus to the test. He wanted to catch Jesus in some kind of a word to trap him. And if you've read any of the Gospels, you know no one ever succeeded. I want to remind you of this. Don't think the reason that happened was because Jesus is the Son of God. Alone. But as you look at the life of Christ, one thing that is utterly clear, He was filled with the Word of God. And he relied on the power of the Spirit. 
you can too. You too can be filled with the Word of God. You too can be filled with the Spirit. So he's putting him to the test. And this is not a temptation to, to sin, but he's putting him on the spot. So what's the nature of the question? He is asked, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? You know what kind of a question this is? It is a degreed question. It is a question asking what is most important. There is a hierarchy of importance here that is being asked. That's a great question. That is a great question. You know, a lot of times... You know, I hear people say, you know, you've gone to seminars or you've been in class. You know, there's no, there's, so, no, there's no such thing as a stupid question. You've heard that. That's a stupid belief in my <laughs> opinion. But I understand the motive for saying that because the people want to encourage people to speak up and not be afraid to sound silly, which I, and I appreciate that. Okay, but, but this is a great question. This is a great question. What kind of questions do you find yourself considering throughout your day? Are they questions uh, that have this kind of a magnitude? Probably not. Probably not. Is that what I'm focusing on? Probably not. But this is a great question. Now, why did he ask it? Well, chances are this was hotly debated during their time. And nobody could come up with an answer that satisfied. Think about it. In the church, the theological debates that have happened for the last 2,000 years... And depending on the period, the theological debate is going to uh, 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 rage about, for example, the Word of God, the canon of Scripture, what belongs in the Bible, what doesn't. Then we're going to talk about who Jesus is. Is He fully God? Is He fully man? Well, you know, His nature. Then we're going to be dealing with atonement, which means what did Christ's sacrifice actually accomplish? Protestant Reformation comes... How is somebody saved? The whole issue of justification by faith and really at the core is what's the final authority here? Is it the scripture or is it a teaching magisterium? Well, even today we have theological debates over the end times. Nobody's in accord on these things. We have theological debates within the body of Christ that deal with election. And people, unfortunately, divide over these things. It is, it is a sad reality. The Bible teaches that you're going to have to come to some kind of a conclusion. And instead of acting like immature little brats, which so many Christians act like, when somebody disagrees with them, let's grow up and go, you know, I don't see it the way you do, but I still love you. You're my brother, you're my sister. Can we do that? Or how about divine sovereignty and human freedom? How is it that God is absolutely sovereign and my choices actually matter? 
These are some of the things that people discuss and are perplexed over. Well, I think in that day, this question is of that ilk. Don't miss this. This was a great question. Now let's look at the great response of the Master. Jesus' response was familiar to them. What he said was nothing new. They lost touch with the meaning. You've heard the, the, the term familiarity breeds contempt. Well, they were guilty of it and we often follow suit. And what I mean is that there's a danger that Bible-believing Christians confront with texts that they, are, that they often hear and never really take the time to understand in context what's being said. John 3.16 is a classic one. A classic one. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through, I think it's uh, 4 or, or, or 6 is another one. Don't judge. I can go on. The point is this, is that Jesus does not bring something new. He reveals what's already there, what's always been there. And he brings immediate attention to God first and creatures secondly. Now this focus clues us into the hierarchy of importance, as I've mentioned earlier, like the architect is of greater value than the building, so the creator is of greater value than the creature. And that is a hard thing for believers to get. And it's not contradictory, and it makes total sense. God is of far greater value than we are. And yet, of all the creation, He made us in His image. And His love for us is equivalent to His love for His Son. And that's why He sent His Son. <sighs> Meditate on that. So the great commandment focuses on loving God. Now Jesus quotes here part of the Shema, which is a Jewish confession much like the Lord's Prayer for the Christian Church, which combined Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 9 with Numbers 15, 37 to 41. Now the Shema emphasized, among other things, God's oneness and God's uniqueness and God's exclusivity. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That is the foundation of all theology. God. There is only one. He alone is Savior. How often have you prayed the Lord's Prayer? Well, in evangelical circles, we pride ourselves in not praying things over and over and over again. We don't want to be like those Catholics, right? No, we just, we just change the tradition. Listen to how you pray. How you pray, how I pray, reveals a lot of our understanding of who God is. 
Sometimes we offer up a flippant prayer, you know, right before we eat. Come on, I'm hungry. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Bless us food. Amen. You know, and I'm guilty. Okay? But the Lord's Prayer is so filled with God. And so often, when we pray it, we're not being thoughtful of what we're praying what well, what the words mean so what does it mean well the jews were also guilty of reciting something very majestic as the shema and and they lost the sight of its splendor and god i hope we don't do that god help us but the first thing jesus says is love the lord your god so what does it mean to love the lord your god well there are four distinct words in Greek that are used to describe love. The first one is called storge, which describes the tender feelings parents have towards their children or children toward their siblings. Then there's what's called eros, which expresses above all an unreasoning passion and desire. Then there's phileo, which refers to pure and simple affection between friends. And here what, what, what marks them is a kindness and a goodwill toward the other. Then the fourth one's agape, which is sacrificial in nature. And its secret is not what can I get, but what can I give. Now in this passage, in this passage that's the term Jesus uses, the sacrificial type of love. Now, the sacrificial love and giving of ourselves to God is based on the fact that He is our Lord, that He is our Savior, that He is our God. He did the initiating in the relationship. We did not. But I want you to note something. We can't love God because He in any way is needy or lacking in anything. And the reason is because He is the source of all life. He is the self-existent One. In His being, in His nature, He can't need anything from beings that are needy and finite because He is self-existent and infinite. So when we're asking ourselves the question of what does it mean for me to love God, I have to understand who God is. Instead, our love for God demonstrates that we actually are part of His redeemed community. And as such, He's our greatest treasure. He's our greatest joy. We are the paupers and He is the prince who benevolently rules and cares for us. Now again, this command is not given because God needs anything from us. But as the good shepherd, He understands that our greatest good is Him. He understands that He and He alone is good. And our greatest good is He who alone is good. So we love Him because He first loved us. 
And as such, we follow wherever He leads us. Now, how do we love Him? We love Him with all our heart, soul, and mind. Now, what do these terms mean? Well, in the New Testament, the term for heart, it's figurative, it's cardia, and it has to do with man's psychological life. But it specifically emphasizes the way of our thoughts, our thought life. The soul here is the essence of life in terms of thinking, willing, and feeling. And dealing with the mind, it has to do with our reasoning and our decision making. So all three of these terms put together, it could be said, you shall love the Lord your God with every strand that makes you human. With every part of what it means for you to be human. This is not an indifferent attitude, but it's a totally vested, purposeful, and dynamic relationship that's going on. Now one commentator notes that to love Him with all the heart is to fix our affections supremely on Him, more strongly than on anything else, and to be willing to give up all that we hold dear at His command. What did Jesus say? If you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. You want to save your life, you've got to lose it. Why? Why, why would anybody do that? Because they see that He is the pearl of great price. They see that God is greater than anything created. The, the aha, the light went on. Has a light gone on in your life? And here's one way you can answer it. Reflect on how you live. Reflect on what's important to you. It'll help you get a pretty good answer. So the great and first commandment. Now, there were some 613 commandments the Jews were aware of, and Jesus narrows it down to one. It is great and first because it's primary. And this is the case because God is also primary. That's why you are to love Him with all you have. Jesus is doing something here that we do not want to overlook. Are you ready? He is dealing with a very difficult concept. And he simplifies it without compromising its substance. Do you know how hard it is to do that? I'm sure you guys know to, from one degree to another. It is very difficult to take a difficult concept and simplify it in such a way that a child can understand it and yet its substance has not been put away whatsoever. I don't want us to miss the mastery of the teacher here, Jesus. So we've looked at loving God, which is who is the Creator, and now we want to focus on loving neighbor, that is, loving the creature. He says the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as, your soul, as, as uh, yourself. Now, the compass God uses in our lives, listen to me, 
The compass God uses in our lives to help us see if the direction and the trajectory of our lives is either Godward or not is in how we deal with other human beings. It's in how we deal with people in church and it's in how we deal with people outside of church. Do you know what that means? You cannot know, you cannot gauge your love for God if you're isolating. If you're a hermit. If people aren't in your life and you aren't in their life to help them grow and they to help you grow. And let's face it, we're all so different. I mean, look around. Let's just do this. Do it for my... Just look around here. Look, look, at, look at you guys. Hey, you guys are so different. I mean, all of us have our quirkiness. All of us in here have our little idiosyncrasies. And all of us think that what we think is the most important thing in the world. Right, Bob? That's right. It's just, it's, it's how we are as people. And we got to laugh because because we know it's like come on man. How we treat each other either affirms or negates the genuineness the genuineness of our love for God. And you cannot say that you love God and hate your neighbor. You can't. Because we're called to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now the same word used for loving God, agape, is the same word that's applied to how we are to love one another. But my question is, is there a difference between loving God and my neighbor? And I affirm there is, and here's my reason. Jesus said that the second commandment is like it. Now some think it means of it's as of equal importance. In the context, I don't buy that. And I'm going to tell you why. I take it to mean that it is similar to nevertheless distinct because of our nature. We are human beings. We are finite and we are needy. God is not. By definition, human creatures are finite. Not self-existent, not infinite. So the distinction in my loving, while it is similar, is different. And why is that? Because... If you're a Christian, you have received the love of God from the self-existent one who doesn't need anything from you. Okay? So, if I'm loved by God, I'm ready to emulate, I'm ready to imitate, I'm ready to copy what He has freely given to me. I am ready to give to my neighbor 
without looking to my neighbor to reciprocate. Why? Because I, the God is the source of an endless source of need. You know, whatever needs I have, He's my source. As Him being my source, I am to love my neighbor and be like God, although I'm not God, but be like God in meeting the needs of others who cannot reciprocate to me. Because God has given me life and light and truth in the gospel and hope, I'm to give it away to others. Now notice, I'm to give it away. Why? Because it's been freely given to me. That is one of the evidences that I'm His. That I'm freely giving it away. And you know what that entails? Your time, your talent, and your treasure. It's everything you hold dear. How many of us hold our time dear? Come on. Oh yeah. Do not interrupt me, I'm in thought. Right? Do not interrupt me. I, I'm doing something right now. I understand that. The Israelites had a view of who the neighbor was. And the neighbor was a fellow countryman, according to Leviticus 19.8, or it was a resident alien. It says that you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And this lawyer in Luke's account is shown that he wants to justify himself after asking this question. And Jesus goes into the famous parable of the Good Samaritan. And he takes the meaning of, again, something similar or familiar, neighbor, and he amplifies it, showing that neighbor is anyone who needs their help. Now I'm going to read from Luke 10, 29-37. Jesus replied and said to this lawyer, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. Your motives and your actions are intertwined. Don't ever think, Christian, that how you live doesn't matter. It's not biblical. It's a lie. It definitely contradicts everything in the gospel accounts that Jesus uh, teaches. 
Loving cannot be selective here. And I want you to point out, here, he's nailing who? He's nailing the priest. And he's nailing who else? He's nailing the priest. Our loving cannot be selective because God has already done the selecting for us. Did you hear that? I'm going to say it again. Our loving cannot be selective because God has done the selecting for us. He's already done the selecting for us. This is a powerful message in our day, think of, of all of the of of the uh, the turmoil in our culture. I mean, this group hates that group, and that group hates this group. And as a Christian, don't get caught up into that crap because that's what it is. It's crap. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. Are you a generous person? Are you a generous person with your time, talent, and treasure? Are you stingy? That's a tough one to answer. God has had to grow me in being generous. And did not, that was not my bent. In a very real way. Some people have that, just, it seems like they have that natural bent. They're, they're just generous. You know, with the things they have or whatever. God has had to really break me <laughs> with um, the things that I own and the things that are, are very valuable to me to share them. He has. And my wife has been a huge blessing in that area. And so has the body of Christ. I definitely could not have grown in that area uh, alone. Impossible. And so, who do you have a hard time loving? Street person? Person that sits next to you in church who doesn't talk? How about the, the person that seems to be super spiritual and have all the answers? How about church leadership? Ever have a hard time loving church leadership? I have. Of course, none of you have. How about relatives? I get along with all my relatives. I love being around all my relatives. And they love being around me, right? I don't think so. How about the little boy or girl who, who ruins your garden? <laughs> you know, like a Dennis the Menacer kind, you know. You have a hard time? How about the mechanic that ripped you off? How about your spouse who, for whatever reason, just doesn't seem to listen to you? Or how about your kids? How about your kids who have caused and brought a lot of pain in your life?
Matthew 7, 12 sums it up like this. So whatever you wish that men would do to you, do so to them. So we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now there's a couple things I want to say about this. First of all, the text assumes that you have love for yourself. Okay? Secondly, in the context, love is not... Um, Love of self is not a, a pathological aberration. In other words, um, this isn't a, uh, somebody who is physically or mentally diseased. But, the observation here is that healthy individuals care deeply about their own well-being. Jesus wants to ensure that their care for others runs at least as deep. So in the text, it's not, it's not dealing with somebody who is, has psychological problems and they're, just, they're all twisted up. No, this is talking about people that are, that are well-orbed. And most people, they do care about their own well-being. Don't most of us care about our own well-being? Sure, that's why we, we bathe and... That's why we eat, and that's why when it's cold, we want to be warm. And when it's hot, we want the fan on or get in, jump in the water. You know what I'm saying? So this text assumes it. This is not a, talking about self-esteem. Now we've seen a great interrogation. It really was a great question. What's the greatest commandment? And then the great response. Love God and your neighbor. And now we are looking at the great conclusion. Verse 40, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. On these two commandments. Jesus closes his case with great force. Don't miss this. He says that on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. And as I've said earlier, there were over 613 commandments. He reduces it to one. He reduces all of these volumes of Jewish thought into one tight paragraph. Do you know what great skill is required to do that? Do you know how much understanding of the Word you have to have to do that? Making difficult concepts. I'm going to say it again. To make a difficult concept understandable in such a way that a child can get it is the most difficult thing about the, 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 the discipline of teaching. And ob well, not obviously, but I'm going to reiterate it. You are not compromising in any way the substance. It's key. This is what Jesus is doing here for us. So if you have a bad memory, <laughs> just go to this text. When Jesus says that 
these two commandments depend on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets means that they depend on they hang on to them if you can picture that door without hinges would it be useful utterly a pain in my neck it's not functional You want to walk with God? You focus here. You do this, you've done the law. And you've done it not to get into the kingdom of God. You do it as evidence that you are in the kingdom of God. And that's the huge difference. Much like the hinges that hold up a door and allow it to be functional, our religious duties at the core when they're acceptable to God is when this commandment is being lived out truly, not hypocritically. As I've said earlier, love can't be exercised in isolation but rather can only find its expression within community. That is why the doctrine of the Trinity is not a problem, but a solution to God's, understanding God's love, and understanding what the love of God entails, and what it means. There is fellowship within the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They give and take and receive. And it's constant. And as His bride, as His church, we're to be emulating that dynamic. Within community, you can't love isolated. That's not biblical love. So what are the implications of us loving our neighbor? Well, I think you can... You've already come up with many. If, if I love my neighbor, I'm not going to have sex with uh, you know, his wife. Uh, if I love my neighbor, I'm not going to murder him for his jacket. If I love my neighbor, I'm not going to steal from uh, their surplus. Um, if I love my neighbor, I'm not going to be walking in the flesh. I'm going to be thinking about the good of another. And the Apostle John wrote concerning this in 1 John 4, 19-20. He says this, We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot, cannot love God whom he has... No. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has seen not seen. And my question to you is, on what is your life focused? If you're a Christian, what's your life all about? It should be about doing the great commandment, pure and simple. 
So we've seen that love for God and neighbor is to be done with everything we have. The great commandment focused on loving God and neighbor. And by doing this, we can rest assured that our lives please God, but also that they evidence that we truly are His. Paul did say many times in his epistles, alluding to, look at your life, Christian, and see if you really are real or not. This is a a great way to to, to check and see where you're at. Are you real or are you self-deluded? And the great conclusion reminds us that true love for God and neighbor is never divorced from a life of purposeful obedience. This is a goal toward which every Christian is to endeavor until their final breath. And my prayer for this church is that we will grow in loving God and loving neighbor. Amen? Yeah? Yeah. Father, we thank you for your word, which is our life. I ask, Lord, that we would not lose sight of the depths of the simplicity that are on the pages of this text in Matthew. And God, I I ask that you would minister to each and every one of us here what we need. We all know we need to grow in this. I mean, it's a no-brainer. So God, help us. For those who may be indifferent and just shut down, do your work, Lord. Tender, merciful surgery in the soul. For those of us that have people around us that you've placed, that we have been ignoring to love and to serve, God, I ask that we would not be disobedient, but obey. For those of us, God, that are tired and overwhelmed with life in such a way that to even follow what was said today seems to be utterly uh, overwhelming. Oh God, that's a lie. We can't do this without your Spirit. We can't do this without your grace. But you've given your Spirit. You've poured out your grace. So we can follow. Not to be accepted by you, but because we're already accepted by you, we are to walk in this road. So God, I ask that you would have mercy on us this morning. And I pray this in your name, Lord. Amen.